welcome to another podcast with me, Toby Webb. Joining me once again for another podcast about science, policy and agriculture is John Entime, who leads the Genetic Literacy Project. So welcome back to the podcast, John. How are you? Very good. Glad to be here. Just briefly, listeners, if you don't know John's work, do have a look at the Genetic Literacy Project. They do fascinating work on science and policy and agriculture. And we did a podcast just a couple of weeks ago called Chemical Complexity, why we need to move beyond organic versus synthetic, where John and I talked about some of the leading issues in chemicals and agriculture, copper sulfate, glyphosate, uh, and some others. And so please do check that out on the website. Um, in this podcast, we're going to talk about gene editing, but not humans. The human stuff is, as you, <laughs> you would know better than I, John, very fraught and emotional and complex. We're going to talk about agriculture and where is gene editing in agriculture today? That's really perhaps the first question for you, John. You and I did a podcast a few years ago with Dr. Kevin Falter and another academic where we talked about the potential of gene editing for sustainable outcomes in agriculture. That was three or four years ago. And gene editing really looked like it showed a lot of promise there for helping achieve sustainability targets. How have things changed since then? What's been happening in the space in the last couple of years? Well, there has been a boom, but it's mostly still in the research stage. China and the United States particularly are investing a lot of money in the most cutting edge research in gene editing. What is interesting about gene editing is that it mimics the conventional plant breeding, but does it in a much speedier and more targeted fashion. The advancements over the past few years have really been refining the research techniques launching a lot of experimental projects focused on what the potential for gene editing is. In terms of actual rollout of products, we are still on the precipice of that. I expect over the next two to three years, as regulations come into focus around the world, that we're going to see a plethora of products, particularly focused on disease problems related to agricultural crops. Let's talk about why things haven't changed, because that was the sense I got three years ago or so when we did this. But first of all, before we get into sort of why it's taking time, just refresh our listeners about what gene editing actually is. I put a reference to it into Google and there's a Harvard Law blog that refers to it. So a Biomed Central blog that references gene editing as being defined by the US intelligence community's 2016 Worldwide Threat Assessment Report as potentially a, a weapon of mass destruction and proliferation, which is possibly the most, <laughs> most hysterical description I've ever heard of gene editing. I seem to have missed that particular meeting. So, John, just explain to us uh, why it isn't perhaps a weapon of mass destruction and proliferation and what it involves and how it's different from GMOs. It's quite a fearful thing that we are actually going to improve crops to remove the threat of many diseases and actually improve the nutritional quality of it. That's the kind of rhetoric, unfortunately, that has bubbled up from the anti-biotechnology community. They had focused on GMOs, which is a form of what's called transgenics, when you create new crops by taking a gene from one species and putting it in another. And that's the origin of the term frankenfoods that had been the major talking point of anti-GMO activists. They were fearful that you're creating hybrid products that were unknown in the natural environment. What gene editing does, which differentiates it from transgenics, is that it uses selective breeding similar to the kind of breeding that we have naturally done. So you use a, a plant or animal's natural DNA 
and you work within the actual DNA of that product, and you don't use a gene from another species. So it's very similar to what goes on in nature. And as a result of the similarity, gene editing is not being heavily regulated around the world, except in one place, which is Europe, where they applied GMO regulations that were put in place in 2001, before gene editing was even on the horizon. It hadn't even been discovered as a potential technique. So they're kind of back applying an outdated view of how you make products. So gene editing is really working within the actual crop or animal and manipulating genes in such a way that it enhances a certain quality or silences some potential problems. And it's really being focused on increasing the nutritional value of crops or decreasing the vulnerability of crops to various diseases. So the potential when this is fully marketed and we don't have the remaining regulatory barriers that still exist in a number of countries is absolutely phenomenal. And just describe for us, John, the differences in what's happening with plants and animals, because they are different beasts, to use an unfortunate turn of phrase. What's happening in plants versus animals? Is it more on the plant side or is the animal side also happening if we exclude the, the human element from this? It's much less controversial to work in plants. You're focusing on eliminating diseases, saving crops like bananas or oranges from plant diseases such as wilt fungus or citrus greening. When you're talking about animals, animals are a much more controversial area. In the United States, they are regulated by the Food and Drug Administration rather than by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I think there's a similar bifurcation in many countries. They're regulated oddly. It's very complicated to understand this, but they're regulated under a drug act that was passed in the 1930s to give you an idea how outdated the regulatory structure is. But it's much harder to get approval of regulating animals. And that's because it's considered one step up the global evolutionary tree, and it's considered more controversial. I think there's a lot of resistance in the public and concern about animal gene editing, but I think that infuriates animal biotechnologists who believe that they should be regulated in the same way that plants and crops are regulated. Is there a scientific crossover with this new generation of non-meat meats? Is there any kind of connection between the potential of the editing of this and, and getting towards a kind of lower impact meat or a kind of more ethical kind of meat? Are the two areas meeting in any way? You know, it's natural to conflate them in your brain, but a lot of the new meats are cellular meat. The, the cutting edge, it's still ways in the future because the costs are so prohibitive right now, is to use literally petri dishes and create meats using proteins that you ultimately grow in a laboratory setting. So that, that, that is definitely the wave of the future. We're going to be able to reduce the impact of growing protein of growing pigs and cows, you know, the, the whole infrastructure that, that is built around them. So there is something similar to that. There are kinds of gene editing that you can do to manipulate aspects of, of animal production to, let's say, increase the protein value or add other nutrients to various meats. That's the way you're going to see gene editing being developed. And you're going to be able to reduce diseases in pigs, diseases in cows, without uh, necessarily giving them injections of drugs that might have some adverse impact on humans. They are related in a certain kind of way, and they're all examples of kind of cutting edge biotechnological advances, but they're really somewhat different processes. So back to plants, 
Why is it then that things haven't really moved on since we last did a podcast about this? Is it that there's just lots and lots of research being done and we haven't quite got there yet? Or is it that there's a sort of what the critics would call a kind of false promise of gene manipulation that the industry always says it's going to solve the world's problems and then never does? What's the balance between those two statements? There is a sense, and it it has existed, as you point out, for a couple of years now, that there's this promise of gene editing, and it's obviously in the news right now, but we don't see a lot of crop-related products. Now, we have seen gene editing being used in developing vaccine technologies, and it's part of the work that's going on right now in developing a response to COVID. So you are seeing it in the biomedical field. The problem in the agricultural field is that there's so many layers of regulation. It's not a clear path to commercialization in many, many countries. It's the United States, Canada, and other countries are still in the process of refining how they are going to approach gene editing in the, on, on the crop side. There is a sense based on initial rulings and pronouncements by agencies, again, in the United States, but also in many other countries, Japan, Israel, and others, that there is a path forward to release a plethora of gene-edited crops. But frankly, I think everyone's a bit surprised that we haven't seen more of those. We keep saying uh, it's it's around the corner, um, but we keep turning the corner and it hasn't yet arrived. But I do suspect that it'll be happening pretty soon. I know that, uh, like, like I mentioned, China has been barreling ahead, probably spends three times the amount of money that the entire Western countries combined on gene editing crops, and they don't face the same regulatory barriers we have. If the government authorizes it, it will go ahead. So I assume that we're going to see a a massive number of products probably appearing over the next few years. And who will be making those products? The big food companies, as we discussed in the podcast we did a few years ago, Big food companies are often, big food brands are pretty scared of being associated with anything to do with GMOs. I remember Kevin Falter talking about citrus greening disease in Florida and how Coca-Cola and Pepsi won't even entertain the idea of talking about GM citrus trees, because in Kevin's view, that's the only way to tackle citrus greening disease. But of course, these companies have made huge public commitments never to have any GMOs. And of course, the NGOs love to bundle gene editing and GMOs together, and that scares the brands. So who's going to be producing and commercializing these products if kind of big food brands are all a bit too scared? They're not scared necessarily. There is a sense that gene editing will be drawn into the GMO controversy. In in other words, there was really hope when the first gene editing research was being explored and then the first products were emerging from university labs, which is where a lot of them started because it doesn't take the elaborate structure to develop a gene-edited seed as it does to develop a GMO. The technology is much more refined. So there was a sense that all the opposition that had greeted GMOs would just not be there for gene editing and that it would be something that anyone could get into. And there's still that belief, but there's trepidation, I think, by large food companies that gene editing is going to face some of the same opposition because the anti 
biotech activists have tried to conflate gene editing with GMOs, trying to raise the issue of what they say is unintended consequences from manipulating seeds. Now, we know that gene editing is not much different than conventional breeding in terms of how it's done, how it happens. It's really kind of a false scare, but it's changed the landscape of who's going into this. Much of the research is being done by university laboratories. It's being done by startup entrepreneurial companies. Right now, the large companies are watching what's going on. They're doing their own research. But this is an area where if gene editing fulfills its promise, it's going to be highly competitive. It's not necessarily something that you're going to need large corporations to guide products through a really labyrinthine regulatory structure, which is what really created the high expenses that have been associated with GMOs. So theoretically, and I think actually it's actually happening, you're going to see gene editing products emerge from a whole different range of sources. It's going to be entrepreneurs. It's going to be universities and it's going to be large companies that are going to be working on consortiums rather than dominating this technology, which is really good because it means there's going to be a highly competitive landscape. And it also means costs will be kept down because it's going to be highly competitive. And as we discussed in our last podcast, it could be a much more efficient way of creating what we want from plant species rather than mutagenesis, which we discussed through example of the, I think the sweet or the pink grapefruit in the last podcast, you mentioned now sold as organic, but had actually been created by blasting genes with radiation. It's widely accepted in the organic community to eat mutagenized crops, including durum wheat, which is the main highest quality wheat that you can use in, let's say, gourmet, organic, or Italian pasta, or the example of the uh, ruby red grapefruit. Um, There you get thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of unmapped random mutations, and that's There's no opposition to that, but when you manipulate one or two genes within the genome, these are not transgenes now, within the genome of a plant, it creates a huge furor. What's so interesting is mutagenized crops too, sometimes took, you know, three, five, seven years. It took six to seven years to develop the ruby red grapefruit. It takes about 18 months at most to develop a gene edited seed. It's going to be much more quick. It's going to be only a few genes manipulated. You're going to be able to map it. So the concerns of unintended consequences is really a a false scare. It's meant to frighten people against gene editing in general. It's being used against biomedicine as well by some vaccine deniers. So it's really almost an ideological opposition rather than something grounded in science. I know that there is some progress perhaps in the conversation about the regulatory environment for gene editing. I'm looking at a piece from Science Business at the end of March, where they note that the European Group on Ethics and Science and New Technologies has said that allowing gene editing for precision breeding would help the EU achieve the goals stated in its farm to fork strategy of reducing the use of fertilizers by 30% and turning 25% of agricultural land over to organic farming by 2030. That's an EU plan But I also note from the same article that the Commission is planning to allocate 5 million euros, the the enormous sum of 5 million euros, John, from the Horizon Europe Research and Innovation Programme for projects aimed at understanding the benefits and risks of genome editing technologies over the next two years. So clearly we're seeing underinvestment here. And I wonder, do you see a ray of light perhaps in, in the UK where obviously we have Brexit for better or worse, and so far it definitely looks like worse, 
but the UK seems to have decided to go down a slightly different road. I know you've been speaking at a couple of conferences about this. Have, have you picked up anything interesting there? There's no doubt that there's a great deal of interest in gene editing in the UK, in Europe as well. I'll be honest with you, the scientific community, the biotechnology scientists in agriculture and biomedicine in Europe are are incredibly frustrated by what they consider literally a backward regulatory schema that's really held Europe back from becoming a leader in world agriculture. Europe is not in the same situation as the UK. The UK is now freed from some of those restrictions. And at places like the Rothamsted Institute in the UK, there's a lot of research going on on gene-edited crops. There is all reason to believe that the government is supportive of this. It's got wide backing in the science community. And there are even some people who are sympathetic to organic agriculture who believe that gene editing seeds can be developed and crops can be grown organically. So there's a potential, a hopeful potential being discussed among some farmers that the technologies can work in tandem and that we can see the best of agriculture by drawing out some of the best concepts that have emerged, particularly soil preservation from um, organic agriculture and merge them with gene editing techniques. So UK could lead the way and also could draw in a lot of research dollars that will not go to European corporations or governments because they are considered backward, kind of in the dark ages of GMO regulations 20 years out of date. So let's talk a little bit about the benefits of using gene editing for, for sustainability. We have a, a large audience of those interested in food, in business sourcing and supply chains. From their point of view, What can gene editing offer as a sustainability advantage in the coming years? What's your views on exactly how, if we can make it work, it can help us get there on sustainability? One of the problems with organic agriculture, the leading one, is the yield lag. It ranges from 20 to 45 percent. It's well recognized by at least honest brokers in the organic industry. One of the major targets of gene editing and seed development is increasing the yield of crops and doing it in a way that in, in no other way harms the crop itself. Another is reducing the incredible amount of disease problems, particularly as the temperature warms, as a result of climate change, we're seeing an increase in all kinds of agriculture-related diseases, like I mentioned banana wilt, um, fungus development, things of that kind. That causes tremendous amount of crop loss, 20, 30, as much as 40%. Imagine a situation where you get a 20 or 30 or 40% yield increase alone just from decreasing disease problems. These are really sustainability advantages. You also see that there's a lot of plants that are not growing in areas because of a lack of moisture, because of climate change. We're developing a whole new breed of seeds that are water resistant or resistant to all kinds of climate change aberrations. And those are other ways to increase sustainability. I think one of the major problems in organic agriculture is release of carbon into the atmosphere. Because of tilling, we are developing no-till crops through gene editing that'll be able to kill weeds in a natural way without applying pesticides. So you'll see a decrease in pesticide use. You'll see a decrease in tilling, which puts carbon into the atmosphere. All of these things combined are addressing different aspects of the sustainability conundrum. And I think every one of them could be factors that will open the technology up to people who are skeptical of it. They see that no advancement comes without a trade-off. And we see it in organics. Again, you get certain advantages from it, but you have a yield lag. 
So everything has a cost and a benefit analysis. I think what gene editing does is really shake up some of the measurements we have and opens up new opportunities to produce a lot more crops with a higher nutritional value at lower cost, addressing yield problems that are there across the spectrum. In our last podcast, we talked a bit about grape growing and, and winemaking and Vinis vinifera and its, its many variations. Do you think gene editing has a role to play in helping industries like the wine industry adapt to climate change? I'm thinking about in the industry at the moment, they're looking at promoting, in fact, they are promoting more heat resistant, drought resistant versions of Vinis vinifera, Grenache over Merlot. Do you see gene editing perhaps providing an opportunity for the wine industry to not have to bring in alternative grapes, but to actually just to tweak the genome of the existing grape varietal to make it more heat resistant, for example, or disease resistant? It's not only a theoretical idea, it's a practical idea. That research is actually ongoing right now. And there's also particular research on finding ways to control through gene editing a response to the fungus, which is probably the biggest threat to growing grapes around the world. And right now, to control those kinds of problems, we use copper sulfate mostly. It's used by not only the organic industry, but it's used by the mainstream wine industry. And there's absolutely um, research going on right now that conceivably could find a way to grow grapes that are resistant to the fungus that forces us to use copper sulfate, which is one of the most carcinogenic and environmentally unfriendly products that we can use. These high-tech grapes will be available, I think, within the decade. The question will be, will the industry embrace them? Will it be a niche product or will there be a sense that the public will accept this? I think over time, we may be talking decades, uh, gene editing will not be nearly as controversial as it is now. It'll be considered an extension of natural uh, plant breeding and therefore will be embraced across the ideological spectrum. But of course, I said that uh, 20 years ago about GMOs and I was dead wrong. So perhaps take my predictions with a grain of salt. Well, as you say, um, gene editing seems a lot more democratic and a lot less transgenic and a lot cheaper. So, you know, one would hope that the tar that it's been tainted with by campaign groups won't last in terms of joining the two of them together and, and presenting them as one. One would hope that necessity will triumph over that kind of wool that's being pulled over eyes at the moment. I note that countries like Argentina allowed genome editing in crops back in 2015, and there are other countries that have done the same, Canada, Australia, Japan, Russia, you mentioned China, India and South Africa. The EU is the only place that regulates genome edited crops the same way as GMOs. So there's a lot happening, as you mentioned earlier, but we're not seeing products on the market. If you look into your crystal ball, John, what's your assessment of what will be coming to market in the next few years that could really help drive sustainability further into agriculture in terms of specific crops? I think where you're going to see the biggest development probably will be, believe it or not, in Africa, where there's a lot of pressure partly because of climate change, to develop uh, disease-resistant crops in bananas and other fruits and vegetables there. And I think that there is almost a sense of desperation that's been created by some of the climate change disruptions. And governments are in Kenya, Nigeria, uh, Uganda are moving forward. South, South Africa is moving forward. And I think the threats are so overwhelming. That's where some of the advances are going to emerge. 
and it'll prove itself in the developing world in a way that will force the rest of the world to take note. I also think that China will be a major innovator and really force a competitive race with the West, with the United States, with Canada, with countries in South America, Japan and elsewhere to keep up because there's a real sense that China could dominate the agricultural market of the future by embracing these technologies and leave the West behind. I believe that some of these pressures will actually weigh on Europe. And I suspect that within two to three years, we're going to see a softening of Europe's opposition to gene editing. But it's going to be a battle royale with the anti-biotech groups, which uh, see this as a kind of bunker hill, to use an American analogy, to fight out the battle of biotechnology. I wonder if you're familiar with the banana fungus, Tropical Race 4, earlier versions of which wiped out almost the entire banana industry in the 50s and 60s. This is why banana flavoring doesn't taste like bananas. It tastes like bananas used to taste. But then we had to replace the bananas from the 50s and 60s with the the Cavendish varietal, which was the only one resistant to tropical race, uh, I think, one and two. I'm not sure what happened to tropical race three, but we now have tropical race four, which seems to me one of the most deadly fungal diseases I've ever heard of in the sense that you have to abandon the land once it gets in there. You have to cleanse everything, almost like a nuclear site. And then there's nothing you can do at the moment with the land once the fungus is in the soil because it lives in other species and then re-emerges. It sounds absolutely terrifying and it's been around for a while. A couple of years ago, it sort of landed in Latin America, which is the really scary thing from an economic point of view because that's where all the bananas get exported from to the US and Europe. I spoke to someone in the banana industry a couple of weeks ago who said that the cases they found in Colombia, they've isolated. And it's literally like going to Fukushima or Pripyat in Ukraine. You know, you just don't go in there without the right kit on and the right cleansing because this stuff is impossible to shift. And I wonder with things like Tropical Race 4, is there evidence showing that that gene editing is the solution there? How far do we know that it can tackle fundamental issues like that in bananas, which is potentially enormously devastating, and things like citrus greening disease? Or do we need to turn to technologies like GM for those? Or is it that we just don't know the answer at the moment? I find these questions fascinating. They are both the subject of of research projects involving genetic engineering right now. And people are quite hopeful. We already have in trial stage uh, genetically engineered responses to citrus screening, which are just as effective, frankly, as the GMO responses, but GMO citrus screening crops are not yet approved. And it's a chance that through gene editing, we will get approval and circumvent some of the outdated laws involving GMO restrictions. But the threat to the Cavendish is real. You're right. It's spread to Latin America. And gene editing is one of the few potential solutions. I don't know how far along it is at this point, but I know it's absolutely in in research stage. Similarly, in Hawaii, there's a threat to a lot of the coffee beans, and there's some gene editing solutions that have been developed and are in laboratories right now because there has been some predictions that some of the disease threats to the coffee plantations in Hawaii could literally pose a survival problem for the Hawaii coffee industry. So these aren't just theoretical threats. These are real threats. Gene editing might be the only bullet in the revolver right now. So if we don't move forward on product development, we're going to be facing a catastrophic future. I I don't think people fully have factored in what climate change really means. It's not just warmer summers and larger hurricanes. It's a disruption of our agricultural system that could have catastrophic consequences over a period of decades if we don't 
literally use the tools that are on the verge of being exploited. If, if we block those, like Europe is doing right now, we could be setting ourselves up for a climate change disaster. Yes, I note from a recent BBC In Our Time podcast on fungus, there were three of the leading fungus professors discussing it, the history of fungus. And one of them noted halfway through the podcast that in Europe, fungus is marching something like 50 kilometers or more a year northwards due to climate change. And that really sticks in the mind when you hear something like that, you know, this sort of army of fungal diseases marching to regions that perhaps they couldn't reach before because of climate change really brings exactly what you've just said to life and really sticks in the mind, certainly for me. Well, John, this has been a fascinating discussion. We'll leave it here and I'll look forward to our next conversation. We've yet to decide, listeners, what that's going to be on, but it'll be around science and policy and and sustainable agriculture because these are areas that really need exploration. In the meantime, have a look at our previous podcast around chemical complexity, which you can find on both the Innovation Forum website and on my sustainablewine.co.uk website. And also do take a look at John's work and sign up to his newsletter at the Genetic Literacy Project. It's, It's all very fascinating. So we'll leave that there for now. John, thanks again for the conversation. Thank you. Enjoyed it.